Amen. Good morning, church. Do you really believe it is a wonderful, powerful name? I don't know how we can not worship the Lord God. He's good. He's faithful. He's glorious. You know, if, if you had all the paper in the world, and one of the songs says, if the ocean was ink and you had a pen, you could write until you used it all up and you could not contain the wonderfulness and the powerfulness and the holiness and the goodness of God. We must worship Him. Thank you, praise team. If you have your Bibles, if you'd take it and turn with me to the book of Colossians, we're going to continue on there. Colossians chapter 1, we're looking at verses 24 through 29. I did have the privilege of visiting with Pastor Jeff last night on the phone and had a great visit. He's home, and I'm sure Sarah could give you much more information than I could, um, but he's very encouraged. He's home, he's up, he's walking. It's going to take a little bit of time, though, on rehab and recovery, so pray for him, if you would. Um, but God is doing some, some good things with him, and God is being used in spite of his suffering. And, and I'm going to actually mention that in the midst of the sermon here in a moment. But uh, he wanted to say thank you all for praying for him and being so faithful to express your love and concern. And I urge you, church, continue to do that. Your pastor needs to be loved on and his wife, so love on them well. Uh, Colossians 1, we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 29, and we're talking about sacrificial service this morning. What does that look like? The Apostle Paul gave us one of the best pictures we could ever see, um, you know, apart from Jesus Christ, of course. Um, you know, many of you in this room, we, we think we know what it means to be sacrificial and live sacrificially. And if you turn on, you know, the TV right now on NBC, what you're going to find is all kinds of sporting events going on, right? I mean, you can watch all kinds of races and the Olympics are all over the place. And, and I'm, I'm amazed at some of the things, quite honestly, athletes can do, uh, swimming, you know, playing games and all those things. And, and you and I know, we know up here that they have put in some time, right? They have sacrificed to be where they are. But that's not the kind of sacrifice we're talking about this morning. This morning, I want you to understand true biblical sacrifice never has me in mind for the goal. It always has Christ in mind and his body, the church. And that's what we see here in this text. Paul is living a sacrificial life uh, on behalf of the church, and, and he labors for that. Uh, many of you, you know, you, maybe you've been a devoted parent, or you've seen a devoted parent. Maybe you've had a devoted parent. You know, I, I realize that not all parents are good, okay? I get that. But there are many that are good, and, and they, they do take time to live sacrificially. In fact, moms typically give us one of the greatest pictures of what it means to live sacrificially. You, you can ask some mothers, hey, t take a rest, take it easy. They're, they're just not going to do it because by nature they serve the family, and I even, I even told you that one of the greatest temptations a man has is a man has a temptation to put his job up as the God. That the job was the curse, right? To work the ground. And yet sometimes he makes the, the job his God. And a woman sometimes will make her family the God. But she will serve them. And so we have the, this picture sometimes that we see, but, but a, a healthy 
God-fearing mother is, is focusing on Christ, is focusing on discipleship, and so is the God-fearing father as well. You know, mothers often do laundry, they cook, they clean, they cart kids around, they shop for food and clothes, they administer medicines, they do all sorts of things, even sometimes working outside of the home at the same time. But dads often work long hours, and if they're a real man, they will, uh, they'll stay up with their kids, help them with homework, they'll clean the home. That, you know, that they will take kids on special outings. They'll meet the family's needs, not only spiritually, emotionally, financially, but physically even protect them, right? Some parents at times will miss meals. They'll give up purchasing things that they want in order to provide for their own family. But real men and women lead spiritually. We have brought the church to a place where it's not even, it's almost not a masculine thing to come and bring your family to church anymore and to lead like a real man should. And that's a shame. The Apostle Paul leads like a man should lead. Now, in, in our family, we see all these things going on. We see parents making sacrifices. And oftentimes in a family setting, we, like, we don't even think about that. Well, that's what they're supposed to do. Why? Because they're family, right? And when we see a parent doing it poorly, our first inclination is, is they're not doing it well. They're ignoring their kid. They're, they're not living like they should. They're not living sacrificially. This is more of the thought that we should have when we think about living sacrificially for Christ and his church. Picture a family. After all, does the scripture not call us a family, a body, a group of members, united? Paul tells us in this passage today what it means to sacrificially serve the Lord. If you would, let's pray before we look at this passage and ask God to reveal His truth to us. Lord, we come before You this morning. We give You thanks and praise for Your Word and Your truth. God, it belongs to You. We ask, God, that You would send Your Spirit, God, to speak to the hearts and the lives of people here this morning. God, sitting in these pews, we ask, God, that our minds and our attentions would be focused on You and not us, not the things outside of here. God, we pray that You would uh, use me, God, in spite of my faults and failures. God, that people would hear Your voice and not mine. God, we ask that You uh, reveal Your Word to us, that we might not only be hearers of the Word, but doers also. God, we thank You for Your truth. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me as we read Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24, it says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, 
struggling with all his energy that is powerfully that he powerfully works within me. You may be seated. If you have a pen and paper, you're taking notes, or if you have a device and you want to take notes on that, if you want to keep your phone out and you want to try to text, text something about the sermon. Text something about God's Word, okay? Don't text how good-looking I am or anything like that, okay? That's a joke. I don't think I'm good-looking, I promise you. I see myself in the mirror every morning. Um, But if you're taking notes, just write down, there's three things we're going to talk about this morning. Sacrificial service requires, number one, suffering. Suffering. Say what? You know, there's some churches that won't even talk about it. They talk about health, wealth, and prosperity all the time. Living your best life now. They are not giving you the truth of God's Word. I assure you, they are not giving you the truth of God's Word. If you want to live a sacrificial, serving life, you're going to suffer. Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians. You you, you know that already. He wrote this letter. He was dealing with Gnosticism, which was gaining of knowledge to reach a deity or to, to please God. But he's writing this letter from prison. He's in jail. He's in Rome. And and Paul, of all people, suffered many things. He lists them sometimes. I encourage you to read all his letters and read where he's written. he's, He's been persecuted. He's been made fun of. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned and dragged to the edge of town, left for dead, only to get up and preach again. This is not a man who quits quickly. He counted it all joy. I know he did. You may say, well, that's the Apostle Paul. But did you realize, according to church history, every one of the disciples died a martyr's death with the exception of John the Apostle, who actually was persecuted, likely tarred and feathered, so to speak, and then exiled to the island of Patmos. Sign me up to die early than to do that. Um, he wasn't just having a day at a beach. And, and we know missionaries in our present day, do they not suffer? Did you know that the church grows faster under suffering than any other state? Did you also know, and I, I heard this from a pastor friend of mine this morning, did you know that in North Korea, it is one of the most difficult places on the whole planet just be a Christian. There's only about 60 to 70,000 Christians in all of North Korea. And as soon as you profess Christ, guess what you get to do? You get to go to jail. You get to suffer. Why do we think suffering's okay? you like, well, I, I know, you know, in Scripture, why do, you, why do you talk like this? Well, we know Jesus suffered for us, right? Should we not expect the same? 2 Corinthians 1.5, I'm going to quote a lot of verses because I'm not, not going to tell you this. We're going to use Scripture to prove it. 2 Corinthians 1.5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share Abundantly in his comfort too. What does that mean? That means that if you're a Christ follower, you can expect to suffer as he suffered. But you can also expect that he's going to go with you and you'll be comforted in the midst of the suffering as well. So there's the great news about it, right? Amen? Not many people are suffering, right? I guess y'all don't suffer ever. 
Maybe we don't. We'll get to that. Someone once asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous people suffer? And his answer, why not? They're the ones who can really take it. I mean, think about that. They're the ones who can take it. Romans 8, 16 through 18 says this, The Spirit of Him bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Oh, don't forget the, this next part. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us, Paul writes. Think about that. Paul's view of suffering is much different than ours, right? You read our prayer list in most churches, and, and you know, we used to have what was called prayer meeting on Wednesday night where there wasn't much prayer. You know, at least lately, a long time ago, there was a lot of prayer, but then there wasn't a lot of prayer. And, but most of our prayer lists, we'd, we'd spend, well, let's take 10 minutes and pray before we start. Most of the prayer lists were, were covered up with physical needs. In fact, I dare say that most of our prayer list contains between 80 and 90% of just physical ailment. And yes, you can have physical ailment that needs to be prayed for, and it can have an eternal point to it. But most of the time, we, we are trying to escape suffering rather than realize God is using suffering. On the wall of his bedroom, Charles Spurgeon had a plaque of Isaiah 48.10. And Isaiah 48.10 says, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. And Spurgeon goes on to write, It is no mean thing to be chosen of God. He wrote, God's, choices, God's choice makes chosen men choice men. We are chosen not in the palace, but in the furnace. In the furnace, beauty is marred, fashion is destroyed, strength is melted, glory is consumed. Yet here, eternal love reveals its secret and declares its choice. That takes a while to soak in, by the way. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. That's amazing. Don't be surprised when you suffer a fiery trial. It shouldn't shock you as a Christ follower. Why? Because God will reveal His glory through it. It has a purpose. Jesus said these words in John 15, 18, and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. The world would... Uh, but because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Huh? Hey, sign me up for the world to hate me, please. Did you realize that's what you were doing when you said, I want to follow Christ? That's why I try to remind people, following Christ comes with a cost. Count the cost. It's urgent that you follow Him. You need to follow Him. You need Him more than life itself, but it's going to come with a cost. 
God's word is clear that we should rejoice in our sufferings related to our walk with the Lord. Your walk with God means you're different. It means maybe you don't participate in the same activities that some people participate in school. Or that some people participate in work. I mean, I I don't know about you, but people in the world just don't have a view of the Word of God or a mindset of the Word of God anymore. There's certain things that if if you have a a walk with Christ and you have a conviction of, the world is going to look at you strangely. Case in point, back when I was working in Dallas, I was was working for a company and oftentimes I was asked to travel or go somewhere. There was one occasion where I was asked to actually go and we had a corporate apartment up in Cleveland, Ohio. And I was asked to share an apartment with a woman to which I said, no way, not happening. Why? I love my wife more than that and I love Jesus even more than that. I will not, even though I know something would never go on, I am not going to subject myself or Christ to have a poor witness that would distract someone from the glory of God. People look at me like I'm strange. I don't, I don't take women home alone. I don't, you know, if I have to drive them to their house, I'm not going to drive them to their home. If, I, if somebody asks me to go out to lunch and it's me and a woman, it's not happening. Why? But for the glory of God's sake right? And yet the world looks at you and say, you are strange. They think that's weird. I'm here to tell you. I've seen it over and over and over. And and there can be persecution for that. It can cost you promotions at work. It can cost you relationships in a school or on on another job. I don't know if you remember the story. If you roll back the clock into the Old Testament of the book of Daniel, there were three guys, right, that, that went into a fiery furnace. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And they had this proposal brought to them. Hey, we're going to make this golden statue. When the, when the horn blows, everybody's going to bow to the statue, and they'll know that, that you're worshiping the king. And they said, oh, no, we will not bow. They gave him another opportunity. They said, oh no, we're not going to bow. And they said, well, what's going to happen is you're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace, right? And sometimes we we brush over the story, but they said, we're we're not going to do that. And we know that our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will worship him alone. Suffering often comes with the worship of God and him alone. What sufferings have you faced because of your service to the Lord and His church? What what job or activity have you seen a cost involved because you're not willing to say, no, 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 I, I can't do that. I just can't. What accolades might you give up if you're going to serve Christ at college, on your job, even in your neighborhood? If you think God is not aware of suffering, I've got some news for you. What did we talk about last week? We said Christ is the head of the church, right? If Christ is the head of the church and we are the body, does he not know when the body has pain and suffering? Absolutely he does. 
How do we know? Well, I can be walking in my house and I can stub my little toe against something and I know it. Why? My whole body feels it. Right? Christ knows that you suffer. He's aware of your suffering. But listen, no suffering is wasted for his kingdom's sake. Case in point, Pastor Jeff. I told you I was going to get back to him. Many of you know he had a setback. He didn't get to come home uh, recently as he wanted to. In fact, he just got home, what, Friday or Saturday? Something like that, maybe? I don't want to put you on the set. Friday. But he had to go have another surgery. Do, do you think a man who's suffered this much already wants to say, sign me up for another surgery? Absolutely not. But you know, he was rejoicing over the phone. Why? Because he got to lead a nurse to Christ. Praise God for Pastor Jeff's suffering that God used to change the life of someone for all eternity. Was it worth it? Yeah. How many of us would say, sign me up? That's the question. Sign me up for that suffering. Yet the Apostle Paul would pray, and he would pray, and, and you would, he, he records this in one of his books. He's praying for the Jewish people. And he said, Oh God, that I might be accursed. In other words, God, remove my salvation, cast me into the fiery hell, only if my nation of people would be saved. I'm here to tell you, I don't know if I have that kind of faith to suffer. I would hope by the grace of God I would. But that's what suffering looks like and, it, and sacrificial service requires that kind of suffering. Number two, if you're taking notes, write down that sacrificial service requires ministering. God made Paul a minister to the Colossian church. His task was to make what? If you look in verse 25, to make fully known to the church what? The Word of God. That's what he, his job was. Hey, teach them my word, my truth. Not only were you called to suffer for the gospel's sake, you were called to live with a holy calling, to make disciples, and we'll get to that in a moment, but this holy calling is about discipleship. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9 say this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of His purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In other words, what is this about? This, the, he, if every one of you are called to be a follower of Christ, every one of you are called to minister to people around you. You are called to be a minister. God set Paul aside. Right? Paul was zealous to persecute Christians, right? For years. He was a student of the Word of God, and he actually used it to attack people who followed Christ. But God intervened in his life on that road to Damascus, stopped him, blinded him, shut his mouth, and then Paul said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Paul repented, and he began to follow. And then he was just as zealous to follow Christ as he was to, to oppose him. Why are you saying all this? Well, Paul had a calling. And I'm here to tell you, you have a calling. If you're a Christ follower, you have a calling to minister to other people around you. 
Make no mistake about it, many of you think you chose your job or your profession, right? How many of you think you chose a job or your profession? Well, yeah, yeah, I did that, I, I chose. Who gave you the mind to be able to do what you can do? Who gave you the hands and the feet to be able to do what you could do? Who closed other doors so that you would be at the job you're at now? You ever applied at a job and didn't get it? Yeah. You ever lose a job you wanted to keep and couldn't do anything about it? Some. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever stop and think about the people you're around that you work with five or six days a week? If, if those people go to a, a local church, and, they, and let me clarify that, if they go to a Bible-believing local church, and they have a good pastor, that pastor gets to be around them maybe one day, sometimes two days a week, depending on how often they go. That pastor often sees them maybe one, maybe two hours a week. Let me ask you a question. Who has more influence on that person's walk with Christ, their pastor who's around them two hours a week, or you who are around them 40 hours a week at work? You have a ministry where you work. Don't overlook it. I encourage you, minister to the people around you. When's the last time you offered to pray for the coworker who's come in who's troubled? When, when did you just stop and say, hey, can, can we just pray about that right now? Let, let me pray for you. Are you a minister where God has placed you? I, I know some of you, you might not even like your job right now. But your employment is not about you or your work necessarily. God has placed you there to be a witness for Him. Live for Him. As a minister, you are called to minister at school, at work, at home, in your church, whether it's kids or youth or Sunday school or senior adults. But notice the word that God uses here for the assignment of this task. He uses a word that we often think of in, finance, in the finance world. It's called stewardship. God has made you a steward or a manager of the task to which he assigned you. Some of you in this room have probably been through Dave Ramsey's financial peace class, and he relates it to finances um, in this way. God has made us each an asset manager over the money he has entrusted to us. And that's important because you can use your money to do eternal things or temporal things. But he's also made you an asset, minister, asset manager of the ministry he's given you, right? Where you work, where you live, in your neighborhood. You're an asset minister of the relationships in your own neighborhood. How many of you even know your neighbors? Are, are we get, I'm glad you do. We are getting in a time where people are so busy, they don't know who lives next door, do they? I mean, people are going and coming, and we never stop and talk with anyone anymore. Listen, you need to ask yourself, to what ministry has God set you apart to be a steward of, a manager of? He's assigned it to you. Verse 26 and 7, continue on. Your, minister, your ministry is that of what? Declaring the mystery that had been hidden until Christ came. What was hidden? The prophets of old foretold of a Christ, a coming Messiah, who would bring salvation. 
Did they know exactly how it was going to take place? No. It was a mystery to them. And you and I have the privilege now of declaring this mystery of Christ who came to die a death we deserve to give us a life we don't. That's our ministry. We, we declare these things hidden in Christ. Salvation that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For all believers, both Jew and Gentile, together for the glory of Christ. Minister. Be a part ministering to others this message of the Gospel. Share with them who Christ is. That is not the job of just the pastor. Being a pastor for almost 20 years, I don't know how many times I heard, hey, hey, pastor, would you come, would you come share about Jesus with my friend or my neighbor? Like, Why don't you do it? They know you. They don't know me. It is not the pastor's job solely alone to share the gospel. It's your job. And it's also your job to minister. And lastly, sacrificial service requires making disciples, and that's your job as well. So just write down making disciples. Verse 28 and 9. The making of disciples is the reason we work for the Lord. In our ministry, none of us can neglect the Great Commission. What's the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. But if you back up to verse 18, before he, he, he sets the preface, and this goes back into what we were talking about last week, Jesus being the all in all, it says, Jesus his, himself said, all authority has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth. Now, go and make disciples. Why do we do this? Because Christ has all the authority, and He will be with us to the end of the age doing it. What does what making disciples even mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to talk about it. Matthew 8, 19 and 20, back up further in the book of Matthew, it says this, And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is Jesus communicating to those who wish to follow him? A follower first must be willing to sacrifice all his life. His bed, his home, his comfort. Then as Christians, we preach this good news of Christ. How can people know Jesus unless we tell them? I've heard people for the longest time, they would say, well, I don't really tell people about Jesus. I'm just going to live it and they're going to know. Really? Listen to this passage of Scripture, Romans 10, 14 and 15. How then will they call on him whom they have not heard or believed? And how will they believe in him whom they've never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, what do you say? Well, I'm not a preacher. That's just for the preacher. No, 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 no. The, uh, the word preach means to testify, to declare, to witness, to proclaim. 
It's not talking about just getting up here on a Sunday morning and opening up a passage and teaching. It's talking about proclaiming the good news. It is up to every follower of Christ to proclaim the gospel. No one's off the hook. No one. You know, as a Baptist in the past, we've also been better at proclaiming this this gospel, and we shorten the gospel, by the way, and we shorten, we really shorten the Great Commission, I should say, and, and we've said, well, here's what you need to do to get saved. And we neglect the first part of verse 28, teaching with all wisdom. What does it say there? Look, look there in the, the scripture. We proclaim a warning, uh, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present what? Everyone mature in Christ. How do you present people mature in Christ unless you teach them the Word of God? Which Paul said was part of what he was asked to do. We've been guilty, especially in Baptist churches, for a long time. And I have to, I have to raise my hand and say, I've been guilty of this. We sell fire insurance and we neglect discipleship. Right? Amen or oh me. It's one of the two. We cheapen the grace of God and we, we, we have reduced the grace of God to a few words that we say in a prayer and we say, oh, you're done, you're good, bye, see ya, good luck. We've forgotten passages like Matthew 16, 24 through 26, which we know and we quote, Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, there's sacrifice right there. Let him take up his cross They're suffering. You see, the cross was an instrument of torture and suffering. And then let him follow me wherever he goes. So you see, wrapped up in that call that Jesus said, if you want to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you see repentance and a faith that continues. For whoever would save his life will lose it, Jesus said, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? Making disciples takes work on our part. And and it's not the works that save us. We've talked about that. It's God's grace that saves us, but we were saved for good works. It means working with others, teaching them the Word of God, helping them to walk with Christ so that they too can make disciples. What part of that prior verse says it comes without a cost? We must teach salvation by grace, but also a heart surrendered to Christ that serves and bears fruit. In the latter part of verse 28, Paul says it's our job to present every man or woman complete in Christ. There's discipleship making in short. The Great Commission is not about just evangelism or training others to to follow, but you also train them to follow Christ and lead others to do the same. You know, back years ago when I played football, my least favorite thing to do was two-a-days. That's coming up, by the way, for those who play. Why? Because you have to run, you have to run, and you have to run, and I hate running. I just want sign me up for the hitting part, and I'm good. But you have to run. But a coach uses two days to what? Prepare a team for battle, right? When the game comes, does the opponent just lie down? Absolutely not. Do you think the world is going to lie down just because someone has professed Christ? No. 
Do you think the enemy, Satan, is going to lie down because someone has professed Christ? No. That's why later on we see the Apostle Paul uh, instruct and say, you know, therefore we put on the full armor of God, right? We take up the armor of God. Why? We arm ourselves. The helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God and the belt of truth and, and the shoes for the gospel of peace. And, you know, we see all of that. And we get discipline when it comes to a silly sport like football, which, by the way, has left me nothing but injury-riddled and a couple of surgeries in now. It offers no eternal benefit to me, but following Christ does. So if we discipline and, and work to disciple others, we see God do something tremendously great. Our job as a Christian is to disciple others in a way that they understand what the opposition will try to do, that they are well-trained and equipped for the battle so that they can, see, they can succeed when they enter the contest. And when life is over, all of us, our, our desire is to stand before God and to hear Him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's our desire. It's not to say, well, God, where's my little, where's my little beach hut on the, you know, on the shoreline that you've made for me in heaven so I can kick back and, and do nothing but worship me. That's not the goal of heaven. If, you, if you've never thought about heaven uh, in any other manner but selfishness, you've got the wrong view. The view of heaven is about the worship of Christ. And the reason that we, we want to worship him is for the goodness that He's given to us as we've been able to make disciples here on this earth. The reason we work for Christ is so that we see more youth and children and, and, and classes and ministries make disciples. And it's not easy work. It takes discipline. Just like we expect our kids to learn math, science, social studies, and English, we have this standard here, and our standard in church is here. Quite honestly, that's where we're at. The study of the Word of God prepares us for battle. This discipline is given, not inherited. It takes discipline. Well, how did Jesus make disciples? I'm glad you asked. There's five things I want to leave you with before we close here. Number one, and these are things you can do. This is how he modeled it. I went back and I looked at the whole book of Luke with 10 other pastor friends of mine, and, and we studied and, and we prayed and we just asked God to show us how have we gotten away from true discipleship. Number one, Jesus invited people to follow him. There's an invitation. <clears throat> you want to make disciples, invite people to follow Christ. Number two, train them or teach them the word of God. Which means you have to first learn the Word of God, right? You learn the Word of God so you can train and teach the Word of God. Number two, Jesus demonstrated how to live in a right relationship with God. Invite people to follow Christ, train them in the Word of God, and now demonstrate how to live in a right relationship with God. Did Jesus do those three things? Yes. Fourthly, He made them responsible. What do you mean? He sent them out two by two, right? He didn't send them out alone. He sent them out with somebody. Quit trying to be a Lone Ranger Christian if that's you. Go with somebody. Hold each other accountable. And you go share the gospel. You go out and preach the gospel and the good news and make disciples with someone. Be a part of the church. Be a part of the church family. Participate in the ministry. Did you know Jesus allowed the disciples to participate in ministry even to the point of failure? What do you mean? 
Remember when he sent them out and they, these people brought <coughs> this uh, possessed person back? They're like, man, even your disciples tried to pray and they couldn't do it. And he said, oh, foolish generation. He said, do you not understand this one only comes out by much prayer and fasting? He was still teaching as he gave responsibility and allowed them to fail. It's okay. That's one of the things I think churches have also failed at in my generation. We gain responsibility and we tend to want to hold on to it as if we own it. The problem is that one day you're going to die. Then who will carry on that ministry? In the short time I've been here so far, one of the things I've, I've appreciated so much already is Taylor's willing to train other people. I don't, I don't know Sarah well enough. I'm sure she's doing the same thing. I'm sure your pastor does the same thing. But you have got to train other people to do the same thing, to serve and minister and let them go. Empower them to succeed or fail. Why? Because the job and the ministry of the church is about sending, not holding. We send people out for the sake of the gospel. We send them out every Sunday. We finish teaching the Word of God and we say, now you too, go proclaim this message of Jesus Christ. And a good, healthy church is sending people out to not only do that through the week, their goal is to grow the body, not just numerically, but in, in wisdom and insight and depth of the Scripture. Why? That they might send out and plant other churches. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, what was the New Testament church in Jerusalem doing? Did they not commission Paul and Barnabas to go plant churches? Was Jesus and God's, one of the first commands, go back all the way to the book of Genesis, and one of the first commands God gives mankind is, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? Why? Because we're made in the glory and the image of God. Right? And God wants His image and glory to go out through all the earth. But when sin came, that, that image was marred and destroyed, and our relationship with God was broken, and Jesus came, and He died on the cross to pay for sin, right? He took on the wrath of God for your sin and my sin, and He died in our place, and He calls men everywhere to turn from that sin and to trust in the payment that He made on the cross... Why? So that the sin could be forgiven and the righteousness of God would clothe us again and that we would look like the image of God again. That that image of God might go forth through all the nations, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord one day, right? But until that day comes, the gospel is for all nations and peoples and tribes and tongues. Why? Because He deserves to be praised from every corner of this planet. That's how I know the church needs to go out. Other than the command we've been given to the other parts of the world, the other parts of the world. So how are you doing with making disciples? Paul said it was God's power working mightily in him. Even if he was suffering, why? So that the kingdom of God might grow. You know, if you're a parent, a grandparent, the question is, are you making a disciple, first of all, in the home? They say, well, it's, it's too late. They're gone. It's never too late. Go read the book of Joel. God will make up for the years that the locusts have eaten. 
You start following Christ, you give everything you have to him, and you watch what he does with your life. Make disciples of kids in the church. You start making disciples of people all around you. The question, though, is this, and, and in, a, in a group of 10 pastors that I went through a study with on discipleship, 10, I can't remember if it was one or two, one or two in that group said, I was effectively discipled in my home church. That means eight were not. Pastors, we're talking about pastors who were not discipled in their church. And we wonder what's wrong with the church. Well, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know why people don't get it. I, I don't know. You, you may not have all the qualifications, but I'm, I'm here to tell you God will help you. You get involved. You see, sacrificial service includes a disciple-making ministry that endures suffering. Be ready. Be prepared and be willing. In your Christian service, do you see any evidence that you've ever had to suffer? And to what ministry has God called you to steward or manage for Him? Well, I don't, I, don't, I don't like working with them little kids. They drive me nuts. They, they drive everybody nuts. Guess what? You drove somebody nuts one day years ago. Are you glad somebody was patient with you? Are you glad someone loved you enough to share Christ with you? What's keeping you from making disciples of those around you? Maybe this morning you're like, man, I don't even know if I've ever heard about this, this good news stuff before. The good news of the gospel, a lot of us, we want to start with Jesus dying on a cross. But you don't have good news without bad news, right? The bad news is, is your sin separated you from a holy God. And you were doomed to die a death you did deserve. The wages of sin is death. You deserve to die for all eternity. But... The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, the Scripture says. In other words, while you were still in sin, Christ died for you. God sent Jesus to intervene on your behalf to die in your place a death you deserve so that you could live a life you don't. And He calls you to believe in that message, to turn from your sin and trust, Acts 15, 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Romans 3, 13, or 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on His name? Is God, is God speaking to your heart this morning just saying, you need to turn from your sin, you need to trust in Christ. You know, it would have been so easy for Pastor Jeff to be sitting there in a hospital bed going, I'm so sick, I don't feel good, I've just had another surgery. But you know, his attention was on a, a nurse, a male nurse named Gilbert, who needed to hear about Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you, it's not Pastor Jeff's job to win all of Kyle, Texas to, to Jesus Christ. It's just not. It's our job. All of us. Share that gospel with those you meet this week. And if you don't know Him, I pray that you would talk with me at the close of this service or Tom will be standing down here at the front. 
whatever God asks you to do. Maybe you just need to come pray. I, I want you to know the altar's open for you. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we thank you. We give you praise for your glory and goodness. God, I thank you so much for this apostle named Paul. God, that, that you inspired by the power of your Holy Spirit to write down your words and your truth. And God, oftentimes we read your scripture, and some of us in this room, quite honestly, we've heard it over and over and over again, and we just say, God, oh, I've heard that before. And we walk out of these doors the exact same person that we walked in because we are rebellious towards your Holy Spirit and the truth that you're convicting us with through your word, the word of God. And God, I pray we would repent even of that, that we would ask you to show us something new in our life that needs to change. God, show us how you're sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus every day. God, I pray that you would just convict us during this time, all of us, including myself, God, that we would turn to you in every way and trust you. God, help us to be willing to, to suffer, to minister, and to spend the time making the disciples you've called us to make for your glory's sake and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Just bow your head and as Taylor sings or plays, uh, I just ask that you respond this altar is open. I'll be here if you want to talk or pray with me. Tom will be here as well. But don't leave this place without speaking to the Lord and acknowledging what he's spoken to you today. You'll find him faithful. You come.